0: Good morning, my name is Anne Marie Shambaugh and the reading this morning is from Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who loves him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I want to say good morning to all of our guests. If you're here from out of town visiting family, uh, glad you could join us this morning. Um, and a special, of course, good morning to all those of you of the faith family who are listening on the podcast later. Uh, we know who you are because your seats are empty and we miss you. So come back. <laughs> Well, my name's Joey. I'm one of the lead pastors here at uh, at Faith, and um, as we move from this holiday season of Thanksgiving uh, into Advent, I just want to preemptively say, one week early, Happy New Year! Uh, Because next year, or next week, excuse me, is the New Year in the Christian calendar. It's the New Year as we roll over into the Advent season. Uh, the, the, the liturgical calendar that kind of goes through the seasons of the year and gives a special focus to each, each season uh, has chosen the first Sunday of December to be the new year because it's the, year that, or it's the time of the year when we, we look forward to Christ's coming. It's what we call Advent. Advent is a Latin word meaning coming. And, and so in this season starting next week, we're looking forward to Christ's coming. We, we remember his coming uh, as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem. Uh, But we look forward to his coming, his second coming, at the end of all things when he comes as a conquering king, and we daily celebrate his coming to us uh, by grace through our faith as he comes to dwell in our hearts and uh, lead us in a relationship with him and towards a a union and communion with God. Uh, It's a triple Advent that we start celebrating next week, which is why it's the new year in the Christian calendar. It's a season in Advent. It's a, a season of expectation a season of waiting, a season of hope. And hope is our topic, well, at least the application of our topic this morning. Hope is a curious thing, if you think about it, because uh, most of the time we, we grab onto uh, objects of our hope, uh, not necessarily because the object itself is true or could sustain our hope, but for the psychological benefits it gives to us. Sometimes, you know, you've heard the saying, you can get through anything as long as you know it's temporary. At least that's what exercise coaches tell me is, come on, you can do 30 more. You just know it's only 30 of whatever it is. Um, You can usually only do five, but that's beside the point. Um, You can get through anything if you know it's temporary, if you know an end is coming, if you have hope that it's going to get better. If you have hope that that, that things will be resolved, that someone will rescue you, someone will save you, or the difficulty will end, whatever it is, if you have hope, you can get through just about anything. Problem, of course, comes when our hope is founded on something that can't actually sustain us or won't itself sustain through the difficulty we're in or the difficulty we're going through. Uh, Hope in something that fails ends up to to be just pathetic self-deception. I know, so this is a real downer of a sermon intro this morning. Sorry about that. Uh, Half of you are still in a turkey coma anyway, so you won't remember this. Uh, Hope is absolutely necessary for life because without hope we fall into despair. But we can't just hope in anything. Or it may turn into self-deception. It may turn into something that we can't trust in, that can't sustain us. So where do we turn when we need hope? Uh, Where do we go when we need a rescue? Where do we go when things aren't right and we need someone to put things back together for us? Where do we turn for hope? We've spent the last uh, three weeks talking about one aspect of God's character, God's goodness, We started out by talking about how God's goodness is intrinsic to who he is. It's part of his nature. Uh, Who he is is good, just as much as he is loving or all-knowing or all-powerful. He is good. Uh, And then we talked about how because he is good, then everything he does is good. Uh, Even the things we don't understand, even the things that don't make sense to us, so we can't figure out how they would work for good or make something good happen. Those things themselves, they are good because he is good. Then last week we talked about how we respond to God's goodness. What do do we do with that? And we talked about how the the more we think about God's goodness, who he is and what he's done for us, the more we will naturally reflect his goodness in what we say and what we do and and in who we are as we become more and more conformed to uh, the image of Christ, become more like uh, Jesus himself. And each week as we've talked about God's goodness, we've centered our exploration of God's goodness on Psalm 145, uh, which we got to hear read in its entirety earlier this morning. So if you want to follow along, uh, jump to Psalm 145. It's on page 621 of the the Bible that's under the seat in front of you. If you forgot to grab a Bible and also forgot to grab a smartphone, Uh, you can look it up there. Uh, We're going to go through Psalm 145 beginning in verse 13 through the end of the psalm. Uh, because in this, this section of the psalm, uh, King David, who, who wrote this particular song, uh, turns to describing who God is and what He does in slightly more concrete terms than we've explored so far. So let's pick up in verse 13. Psalm 145, verse 13, "Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all His words and kind." in all his works." Now, if you're like me, you may have bumped right away in verse 13 on the word dominion. Dominion doesn't sound like a good thing unless you're a card game player and then you like the game, but uh, dominion sounds like a a negative word. You know, it has those connotations of dominance, of somebody dominating over you, somebody exercising unwanted authority uh, or making you do things you don't want to do necessarily. And it's a word I think that at least we bump on because as moderns and as Americans, we're not all that fond of the idea of authority, especially an authority who tells us to do something that we don't want to do. So being in someone else's domain, being under their dominion sounds like a negative thing. And it is a negative thing if the person you're under is going to take advantage of you or take advantage of his stature, his situation, his rank. Which is why as we go on, and we look at the character of God, we can be thankful that we're under his dominion. We're in his domain because he is a good God. Look at the second half of verse 13. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. That part of the verse is almost identical to verse 17. There's only one word different. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. See, the extent to which we chafe under an authority or a dominion that we we don't like is the extent to which they lord it over us in a negative way. But if God is good and everything he does is good, then as we consider his goodness and his sovereignty, his his kingship together, uh, we're going to discover that God is a good king. He is a good king. David describes him as faithful, kind, righteous. He's faithful. He will always and consistently do good to his people. He is righteous. He will always give us and provide for us exactly what we deserve and exactly what we need in any situation or circumstance we're in. He's kind. He's loving. He's loyal. He's faithful to us. Now, King David doesn't leave us with a a description of God that is just uh, big picture, faithful, kind, righteous. He he goes through in the next few verses and gives us some more concrete examples of what that looks like. And as we go through the rest of this psalm, we're going to see that our God is a good king because he is the king who rescues. He's the king who provides. He's the king who satisfies, fulfills. He's the king who judges. As we go through the rest of the psalm, we're going to see our God is a good king. He is the king who rescues, the king who provides, the king who fulfills, the king who judges. So our God is our king. First, our king who rescues. Take a look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. All who are falling, all who are bowed down. These are both images. They're pictures of someone uh, who, through circumstances outside of their control, is no longer in control. If you think about it, I don't know anyone who, while they're falling, feels in complete control, unless they're an Olympic diver or something like that. When you're falling, you're completely out of control, or at least I am. When I uh, you know, trip and start to fall, I usually have just enough time to think, I didn't plan this before I hit the ground, right? Not enough time to do anything about it. Uh, the second half of the verse, the person who is bowed down, uh, the Hebrew has this idea of someone whose back is bent. It's weighed under by the, just the, the weight of long years of toil and hardship. And in both cases, someone who is falling, someone who is bowed down is someone who themselves can't fix What's wrong? The person who is falling can no more rescue themselves than the person who has been broken by years of labor can suddenly straighten. And so in both cases, David said, no, God is the one, the Lord is the one who wants to uphold the falling. He's the one who wants to catch the falling. He's the one that the falling can lean on. He's the one that the falling can, can grab as, as they go down and, and, and will be saved, He's the one who raises up all who are bowed down. He, he straightens the backs of the broken and restores people back to what he intended them to be. Now, I, there, there's a part of me that really likes to see old things restored, uh, brought back to life. In the, the first house that we owned over on uh, 79th, uh, I was digging up some flagstones in the backyard and found, buried in the mud for I don't know how long it had been there, uh, an old axe head. I thought, well, this is nice because I don't have an axe. So I uh, uh, ground it up, smoothed it up, put a new handle on it, and now I've got an axe head that I can use to split wood with. And I have, and it, it's worked great. Uh, and I love seeing something old like that taken and made new again, even if it takes hours of buffing and grinding and work to make it happen. Uh, I like doing that, but I like doing that with inanimate things. I'm not so good at doing that with people. God thrills to do that with people. You could say he lives to catch those who are falling, to to straighten up those who are bent and broken, uh, to restore those who recognize they can't do any of the restoration themselves and instead call on him, cry out to him to be rescued. He upholds all who are falling and raises all who are bowed down. God, our king, our good king, God is the king who rescues God is our king who rescues. And he's also the king who provides. If you look at verses 15 and 16, God is the king who provides. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Now, I like the way the the New English translation uh, gives us a little more punch. It says, everything looks to you in anticipation and you provide them with food on a regular basis. You open your hand and fill every living thing with the food they desire. Now, it's, it's a poetic picture. It's a, it's a picture of God caring for his people in the same way that a rancher will, will care for his animals or a, an owner will care for a pet. And it's not meant to be condescending towards us, you know, as if we're the, the dumb dog who's sitting there waiting for the food to drop into the bowl. It's it's meant to be a picture of how God will providentially and out of love provide exactly what's needed at exactly the right time. Cause some animals don't know when to eat and some don't know when to stop eating. A couple of years back, my wife and I were at the Texas State Fair, which is a huge state fair. And we were, as you'd expect, it's Texas, it's big. Uh, and, and we were in her absolute favorite place, uh, the animal barns, which I don't get. I mean, they're the same animals every year, at least they look the same. Um, they eat, they finish with their eating, you clean it up, and it's like, what is there to look at? But anyway, I don't get it. Um, but at the Texas State Fair, they had an exotic animal petting zoo, which was pretty cool. So you go in, and for a couple of bucks, you can buy a cup of food, and then you can walk through, and you can you know, feed that food to whatever animal strikes your fancy. And of course, everybody loves the goats in the middle, and they're sticking their heads out, and they're just, they'll get whatever they can get. They don't know when to stop eating. They just go, 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 and, and you keep giving it to them, they'll keep eating it. Or you can go around to the camels, which are always sitting there against the back wall looking at me, Like, you really think I'm getting up for that measly little cup of food? It's like nothing. I'm not moving. And then there's my favorite, and and I remember this so clearly, it was hilarious, an ostrich, and everybody could see the ostrich because it's towering over everything else. We could see it up ahead. It was kind of the end of the thing, and so as everybody's weaving weaving forward in this packed room, we're all waiting to get to the ostrich to feed it what we have left, and I watched this guy in front of me hold up a cup full of food, and he just held it up above his head out to this ostrich, who did not know the difference between food and the container the food was in. And it, just one big bite, took the entire thing right out of his hands, cup and all. And the best part was watching this big lump go down the ostrich's neck, and thinking, should we tell someone? <laughs> or is that not the first cup it's eaten <laughs> this week? I didn't, we didn't say anything at all. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm assuming the ostrich was fine, because... They're biodegradable cups, right? Um, anyway, it, it's what I'm thankful for is that our God knows not just what we need and when we need it, but how much of it we need. You know, some of us are like the camel sitting in the back of the, uh, the stall saying, is that all you got, God? Is that it? Is that all you've got for me? I'm not moving for that. And some of us are like the ostrich just jumping and being like, I want more, I want more, I want more. You know, taking whatever we can get, taking all of it. And, and, and wherever you are on, on that spectrum, we can be thankful to know that our God is not like the typical petting zoo tourist who brings the food in and then just feeds it all to the goats, right? He, he's, he's got exactly what we need provides exactly uh, what our hearts desire, when they desire, when we need it. Not necessarily when we want it, but but when we need it. Uh, Because he's a good king. Uh, He's a king who provides. He's a king who provides what we need when, when we should have it. And our role is accepting what he's provided as good and accepting when he provides it as his good timing. You know, if we're praying and we're asking God for something and he keeps saying no or he doesn't give it to us or he's saying not yet, then that that doesn't mean he's withholding something good. It means he's doing exactly what is for our best because he's a good king. He's a good king, the king who rescues, the king who provides. He's also the king who fulfills. The king who fulfills, who satisfies. Look at verses 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Of course, this this is the image brought even more to a point of someone uh, someone who needs help, someone who needs rescue, someone who's who's falling, like we read before, and, and is crying out. They can't save themselves. They can't rescue themselves. They need someone outside of themselves to rescue them, to provide for them. And and God says here, David says here about God that He's near to those who call on Him. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. That doesn't mean those those who are. A, afraid of God necessarily, but those who understand rightly who God is and and who they are, uh, who respond to him in appropriate ways, who who respond to him in love and who worship him. He's near. And and I love the word near because it carries an idea not just of um, physical closeness, uh, but emotional closeness. A couple months ago, uh, we finally were successful in teaching our now seven-year-old daughter to ride her bike. She had tried a year ago and fell off and was like, nope, I'm done. And any time we got her on the, on the bike with no training wheels, it was just instant tears uh, until we realized what she was afraid of, that she had fallen. And so we went and we got her knee guards and elbow pads and wrist guards and gloves, and we got her helmet out, and we put her on, and we're like, you are going to learn this. And the only thing I didn't do was wrap her in bubble wrap, uh, but I was tempted. But we're like, you're going to do this, and we practiced falling so that she knew it wouldn't hurt, and we got her on the bike, and she's she's sitting on the bike, and we got a slight slope down, and, and there's no training wheels, and her feet are on the pedals, and I'm holding the back of the seat, and she's saying, what every kid says, don't let go. Know, don't let go, and I did what every parent did. I lied. I said I won't. You know, I, I won't. And I held on the first time, but the second time I let it go, and then you know, let go. And then she must have sensed I wasn't near anymore because she turned around to look and fell over. Uh, so we tried it a third a third time after being glad that her pads protected her her knees and ankles and all that. And and, and so we tried a third time, and I said, I I will be here. I am. I'm near. I'm close. I'm physically close but I'm emotionally closer. And the thing that surprised me about this whole, this whole process of teaching her to ride a bike is that once, once she found that, that freedom, you know, she can ride, she can ride out ahead of us. She can, she can go by and say, look how fast I'm going and she can look over and not fall over. Once she found the freedom to ride and I could no longer be physically close, I found myself emotionally closer. I found myself more drawn to her, more concerned about her safety, because I couldn't be right there to catch her. I couldn't be physically right next to her, and so I got emotionally closer, and I don't know where you are with your feeling of closeness to God, whether you would agree with David that he's near or you're saying, no, he's far away, I have no idea where he is. Uh, but whatever your sense of God's closeness, what I do know is that he is near, emotionally near. You may feel like he's not close enough to catch or close enough to, to care or close enough to rescue, but he, he is. In the same way that, um, that I found my heart drawn closer to my kid when she got physically farther away, God is drawn towards us. He's near. He's near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And verse 19 uh, goes further to say, okay, he's near, but he's not near just to reassure us with his presence, uh, You know, as if walking next to your child and then watching them fall off the bike is a comfort. You say, no, he's, he's near, but also fulfills the desire of those who, who fear him. In this context, the desire is, is to be saved. Save me, they, they cry out. God, save me. I need you to rescue me. He fulfills their desire, their desire to be rescued. And I think we all long to be rescued, whether we'll admit it or not. Uh, Some of us are willing to say, "I I long to be rescued by something bigger than I am, something stronger than I am, something outside of myself. I can't do it myself. I need someone else to come and rescue me. But most of us, myself included most of the time, know I need rescue, but I think I have to rescue myself. So I ask the future me to rescue me. You know, I work harder. I try more, I develop extra skills or try to learn something more so that I can get strong enough or big enough or powerful enough or whatever to rescue myself. We all need to be rescued. And we're all working to some extent or another to try to rescue ourselves, which points to a a fundamental aspect of human nature. We are restless. We are restless. And by restless, I don't, I don't just mean that we're tired all the time or we can't sleep, though it's a good picture of it. By, by restless, I mean we are always longing, always working, always moving, investing, striving for something, trying to, to find something or build something or develop something in ourselves or outside of ourselves that we think can rescue us, that, that, that can give us a sense of of peace, uh, a sense of home, a sense of belonging, a sense of of rest. Uh, One theologian writes, human beings are fundamentally restless. We always hunger for more and never seem to be fully satisfied. Uh, Human persons never sit back in this life and say, there's nothing more to do or nothing further I could enjoy. Even when all the doing is done, then we still, we spend the time enjoying it, soaking it in. He says, unlike animals who are without reason and will and cannot consciously understand this state and react to it, we humans are aware of our restlessness and can respond in better or worse ways. And that the story of humanity's attempts to respond to our restlessness in different ways is is the story of the Bible. It's the story of history. It's the story of our own lives. I know some some of us are old enough that we've we've gotten past the point where we think we can find any sort of rest and have just despaired. Well, there isn't any. Some of us are young enough that we think, no, 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 there's still that next thing. If I could just get to the next thing, if I could get that degree or that job or the respect of my parents or the right spouse or the right house or, or the right profession, if I could just find the thing, that will, will quell my restlessness. That will give me peace. Some of us are in that middle ground between optimism and despair where we either you know, sometimes we still believe it exists, that we can find rest, and sometimes we're just not sure we can find it here. But, but what God is coming to us and saying through King David in verse 19 is that there is fulfillment for that desire. There's fulfillment for the desire to, to be at peace, to be at rest. But it's not found in the future. It's not found here. It's found in him. One commentator on this passage says Psalm 119 is the emotional heart of the psalm because God promises to to not just fulfill our desires, but to satisfy our desiring. Not just to fulfill our our temporary and repeated desires, to meet them and then let a new one come up and meet it, but to fulfill our very active desiring so that one day, we won't even desire anymore. There'll be nothing left to want. One day when we we are in God's presence, when we see him face to face for eternity, then the thing our soul has been longing for and looking for our entire lives will be in front of us and we will finally be at rest. He will have satisfied our desires and fulfilled our desiring itself. Uh, St. Augustine was a a 4th century Christian philosopher, theologian, and and most of his life he writes about under this metaphor of restlessness. And in his his big autobiography, his Confessions, uh, he says, Woe betides the soul, which supposes it will find something better if it forsakes you, Lord. Toss and turn as we may, now on our back, now our side, now our belly, our bed is hard at every point because you alone are our rest. But look, there you are. Here you are, you rescue us from our wretched meanderings and establish us on your way. You console us and bid us saying, run, I will carry you, I will lead you, and I will bring you home. Augustine taught that every desire we have Everything we long for, everything we go after, every good thing we strive for, everything we work hard to get, all of it is, is just a, uh, it's a mask or it's a, or it's a mirage or it's a, a copy of something we can only find in God says, whatever you're looking for, whatever you're striving for, whatever you're chasing after, whatever that is, it's a good thing. But it's a good thing that, that points to the best thing of all, to the best one of all, to God himself. Every desire we have is ultimately a desire for God and for the good that can only be found in God. And we're, we're fallen people, so we're, we're going to look to other people and other things to satisfy that desire in us. Uh, but it's a, satisfy, it's a desire that can only be satisfied in God. In God, our king, our good king who fulfills, who fulfills our desire, who opens his hands and lovingly gives to us what our hearts are yearning for, which is him. God is our king who fulfills. So, where are you looking for fulfillment? See, God is the king who rescues, who provides, who fulfills, and he's the king who judges. Look at verse 20. King David says, The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Now, notice it should come to front of mind right away in this verse, there's both a positive judgment and a negative judgment. On those who love him, God meets out a positive judgment. You love me, I will preserve you or watch over you. Um, You're wicked, I will destroy. Now, this isn't God sitting up in heaven and saying, okay, you have done such and such a number of good things, therefore I'll preserve you. You have done such and such a number of bad things, therefore you're now wicked and I will destroy you. What, uh, the, what the picture of this here is, is someone who, as a righteous judge, is presiding over a case in which there's the guilty and there's the innocent. Just like any other judge, we would want God to judge rightly who is innocent and who is guilty. Now what makes someone innocent or guilty is their response to God, their response to God's covenant love, to a God who has moved towards them and chosen to love them, chosen personally, selectively, voluntarily, spontaneously, undeservedly, exclusively, and through no merit of our own, his love. God is saying, here's the love I've shown you, now how are you responding? Do we respond back and say, I, I don't deserve any of that? I, I, why are you doing this for me? If we are, then God says, I, I preserve you, I watch over you. If we look back at that and say, I don't need your love. Why do I want that? I'm fine. Then King David is clear, for, for the wicked, for those who reject him, he ultimately rejects. Now, I know the the words judgment and destroy and rejection, those are hard words for us to stomach, for us especially. Uh, They're hard for us to understand how a loving God could could punish. It's actually because of his love that he cares enough to punish. If God didn't care for us at all, if he didn't love us at all, uh, then he would just let us be in our sin. He wouldn't punish. He wouldn't point it out. He wouldn't say, look, this is what you're doing. Uh, My daughter, Anna, uh, turned seven on Thanksgiving uh, this year. And uh, so we had a party for her. We had turkey and pie and stuff like that. It was really fun. Um, But we invited a bunch of her friends for a birthday party the Saturday before. I asked her, "Uh, what do you want for your birthday? And first she said a kitten party. She wanted us to rent a hundred kittens and let her just play with them, (laughs) which I think is a great idea. And if there's anybody who can make that happen, let me know for next year. But since we couldn't make that happen, I said, well, what's your your second choice? And she said a dodgeball tournament. She wanted a dodgeball tournament because she's a youth pastor's kid and she'd helped me run dodgeball tournaments for the junior high, so that's all she wanted. And we said, sounds like fun if your idea of fun is managing 36, seven, and eight-year-olds who are on a sugar rush with things they're allowed to throw. I don't know why we thought it was fun, but I got to be the referee. We put them in basically a cage in the middle of right down there in, in the, the lobby, and, and i holding a microphone and getting to referee the games and taunt the children, which is really fun, and uh, just watching them throw things at each other, it's, it's a blast. And, you know, there were a few kids. Um, I'm not going to point out who exactly, but some of them might be in the room right now, who, who came up to me and were like, you know, um, Pastor Joey, uh, I hit so-and-so three times and he didn't go out and I just want you to watch that because of a very acute sense of justice in this world and I need, you, I need you to take care of that. And most of the time, I just, you know, whatever, just let it go. Because I wasn't too concerned about actually refereeing the game. It's a free-for-all with six-year-olds. It's not, I mean, there's no prize, so it doesn't really matter who wins. Uh, And so I was just letting the kids kind of do whatever they want, except my kid. Uh, I really don't care if, if your kids, I shouldn't say I really don't care. That sounds harsh. I care less if your kids cheat their way to the top. Uh, I mean, I know that's going to curve their souls inward and it's going to make them the kind of people who later in life, you know, think if they can get away with cheating, they're going to do it to get ahead. But that's on you. That's not on me. My kid, (laughs) my kid's deformed soul is on me. And so when she's playing dodgeball, I'm very concerned that she play fair, that she play by the rules. I don't want her to become that kind of person who thinks they can cheat and get away with it and then does it in life and, you know, becomes... um, come sort of like curved inward, you know, sort of like a, a moral selfie all the time of just someone focused only on themselves. So she crosses the line, she's out. And I mean, literally crosses like the center line. If she crosses the line, she's out. If, uh, if somebody catches the ball that she throws, she's out. Somebody hits her, even if it's just sort of glancing off the sleeve didn't actually touch any part of her body, she's out. I want her to play by the rules. Now, that sounds harsh. Sounds judgmental but it's because I care. It's because I love her that I'm going to hold her to a higher standard than I hold your kids. No offense. But I, I, I care. I'm more emotionally invested in her. I love her more, and I hope if I can balance um, strictness with tenderness that she's not going to grow up to resent me or need too much therapy. Um, and I hope that at some point she learns to respond well to my promptings in this regard, not, not legalistically. I don't want her to start a journal with, today I learned three new things I have to do to make dad happy. Uh, that's not the point. I want her to, to learn to respond to me in love because she can see that what I'm doing to her and for her is out of love. Now, I know that's what every parent says to their kids, like, I'm spanking you because I love you. And this hurts me more than it hurts you. It never did. (laughs) Especially when they use the spoon. That didn't hurt them at all. But I get it it a little bit more now. I care. And so I'm more harsh than if I didn't. If I didn't care, I would let her become the kind of person who is curved inward on themselves and can't think about anyone else. But I'm not going to do that. God is our king, who judges us because he loves us. He, he's the king who enforces a, a kind of a standard of obedience because he's saying, look, this is the way I designed you to be. This is, this is what I meant when I created you. You would naturally do this, but because you've walked away from me and now come back, it's not your nature anymore. I, I need to encourage it in you. I need to develop it in you. And so God, uh, he punishes, he chastens He molds us. Whatever he's doing to us and for us is for our good, even when it doesn't feel like it. It's who he is. It's what he does. God is our king. He rescues, he provides, he fulfills, and he judges. All of it for our good. He's our good king. So, as we wrap up this sermon this morning and the, the series itself as a whole before we go into Advent next week, uh, just one point of application. A good king, a king we know is good, is a king who gives and who brings hope. If you've known me for any length of time, you, it's no real surprise to you to know that The Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite books. And I know that's kind of cliche to say now that the movies are out and they're super popular, and especially now that Netflix has apparently bought the rights to make a TV series, so yay. But um, I liked it before it was cool. So uh, there's a scene near the end of the books It's not, the scene isn't in the movie, because the the books had like seven endings, and the movie only had four, so it left a couple endings out. But in in the books, uh, Gandalf the Wizard and our four hobbits are headed back to the Shire. They're heading back home. They've been gone over a year, and as as they get closer and closer, they realize things are not as they left them. Uh, The Shire is not as they left it behind. Someone has taken over. Someone new is in charge. All they know is he's called the big man. And as they get closer, they hear more and more about the rules and the guards, and there's way more sheriffs than there ever used to be, and there's all sorts of things that are not allowed, and they're saying, this is not the shire we remember. This this king who has taken over, whoever he is, is exploiting the people for his own good. And as they're on their way back, they stop in a particular inn, and they're talking to the innkeeper who they... Saw on the way out, and they're telling him everything that's happened over the last year. And he's telling them of their troubles in the Shire and the area around it. And Gandalf the Wizard tells him, Cheer up. Cheer up. You've been on the edge of very great troubles. And I'm only glad to hear that you've not been deeper in, but better times are coming. Maybe better than you remember. There's a king again says, there's a king again. He will soon be turning his mind this way. Then the greenway will be opened again and his, his messengers will come north and there will be comings and goings and the evil things will be driven out of the wastelands. Indeed, the waste in time will be waste no longer and there will be people and fields where once there was wilderness. And the, in, the innkeeper responds, well, that sounds more hopeful, I'll allow. See, knowing there's a king. And knowing there's a good king, there's a king who rescues, who provides, who, who fulfills, who judges, knowing that there's a good king gives us hope. He's in charge. He's in command. He's ruling. And nothing can change that. And everything he does is good. It means whatever's happening to us right now, whatever's going on in our lives, whatever circumstances we're trying to get through or pain or difficulty we're in, whatever we want to see happen in the lives of the people we care about, whatever we're struggling with or just trying to get through, there's a good king and he knows and he cares and he provides and he rescues and he fulfills and he, he judges and he is going to bring about some sort of of ending that is not forced or arbitrary or tagged on, but exactly the right kind of ending in his own time that just rises right up out of the evil that we're experiencing and and the hardship we're going through and is the exact right kind of, of ending for our circumstances. He is a good king, and that gives us hope. It's a hope that the, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It's firm and secure. And it's a secure hope because it's not tied to us, it's not tied to circumstances, it's not tied to the changing whims of whoever is in charge. It's a hope that is tied to Jesus. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. It's a hope that is tied to our good king, our king who came, lived, sacrificed himself, died on our behalf and rose again to rescue us, to provide for us, to hold out his hands and fulfill everything we desire and to fulfill our desiring itself. Our hope is in our good king, our king who rose again. God, you give us a hope that is an anchor for our souls because it is a hope that is based completely in the firm and final and finished and once for all sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. God, King David could only dream of a once for all sacrifice and yet could still say that you are the God who rescues and provides and fulfills and judges, and that he would sing your praise forever and ever. God, how much more can we sing your praise? Because we have seen the finished sacrifice of of the one who is our hope and who holds our hope in his hands, our good king, our risen king, Jesus. We pray in his name.